Welcome to the eighth episode of the second series of the Women in CX podcast, a series dedicated to real talk conversations between women and customer experience. Listen in as we share our career stories, relive the moments that shaped us and voice our opinions as loudly as we like about all manner of CX subjects. I'll be your host, Claire Musket, and in today's episode, we'll be hearing one woman's story about growing up in a communist state and surviving domestic violence to start one of the first fully virtual global CX consulting agencies delivering agile CX. Let me introduce you to today's inspiring guest. She began a career as a research manager at GFK and went on to head up customer experience at Domestic in general before leaving the corporate world to start up her own company, the European Customer Consultancy in 2017. As well as holding an executive director role at the Customer Institute, she's also a published author and a regular CX awards judge. Please welcome to the show, CX sister, Olga Potapsova. Hey, Olga. Hi, Claire. Really good to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, well, it's the first day of national lockdown, so um, actually feeling okay compared to last time, feeling much more resilient and ready for it. Whereabouts are you calling in from today? I'm from Georgia, calling in from Georgia. So we're fortunate enough not to have a lockdown just yet, but yeah. I'm sure it's coming just yeah, like yeah. everywhere. And it's not Georgia in the United States, it's Georgia in the Caucasus. No. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, mustn't confuse the two. Yeah, so I suppose also fortunately not going under the general election that's happening there at the moment either. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunate all... on all sides. <laughs> yeah, so at the time of recording, they're mid-vote counting. Um, so yeah, everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath right now of uh, what the outcome's going to be. But doesn't affect us quite so much in the UK and Georgia in the Caucasus. So um, we're here to have a very important conversation today as two women in CX who've experienced some similar challenges. So um, we're going to get onto something pretty meaty later on, but I'm going to start by warming us up gently. And <laughs> oh, girl, I'm always fascinated to hear from women who had a different experience of growing up than myself. And I know that you grew up in the Soviet Union and when it was the communist state back in the day. Would you mind sharing a little with us about what that was like growing up there? Sure. Um, I, just to set the expectation, I don't think childhoods are all that different as long as you have a loving family. And my childhood was safe and fun. I think the only real things that influenced me from the communist state side of things is the prevalence of collectivism over individualism. So that means putting others first. And it, in a way, it's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you need to look after yourself as mm -hmm. well. And knowing yourself as an individual and why you're worth it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that system isn't particularly conductive to appreciating your own value and that took me quite some time late in life to learn who I am. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite a demanding culture as well. Um, as a child like all girls in the Soviet Union did either ballet or music. Mm -hmm. It's not too dissimilar from many other cultures but I, I was the uh, unlucky one who didn't have a body for ballet so I did music. Oh. <laughs> what was your instrument? <laughs> Piano. Piano, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I didn't like it very much and I was meant to do seven years of it. It was like a standard course, mm -hmm. but I decided that I really don't want to do it for seven years and I got so good at it so I could skip a year. Ah. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> Finish it early, there was no other way out. And uh, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the type of pressure that people experience mm -hmm. in cultures similar to Soviet Union. It's by no means exclusive mm -hmm. to that country 
Um, I think the restricted freedom of movement shaped my values in life quite a bit. Uh, later in life, uh, well, Georgia is my fifth country of residence, and I think that says a lot. Okay, <laughs> where, where, so we started in, the, um, in Russia. Where did we go? Uh, Russia, then I went to the US for a bit, mm -hmm. uh, then Germany to study at the university, then back to Russia for a bit, then 12 years in the UK. Oh, of course, yeah. And <laughs> two years ago, I moved to Georgia. And how did it shape uh, your values then? So the, the restriction on freedom of movement? I think it's just people need to be able to move. It opens up the world and, you know, as they say, travel combats ignorance. And mm. it's so important that people have the experience of different cultures they get mm. to see other ways of doing things and eventually they realize that there are very few things that are right or wrong mm. they're just different mm. and except for the really core values mm. everything is normal you know you can wear different things but that doesn't make you a different mm. person at mm. all and understanding and feeling the for peace and appreciation of other cultures mm -hmm. yeah I got to go to Russia actually for the first time not last year the year before I did a backpacking tour and Moscow was my first stop on my way to Asia um but yeah I, I, I don't know I felt a quite a, a, a different culture towards tourists maybe it was just the place that I was in but not being able to speak any Russian and stopping and asking for help <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I think because um, the alphabet is different, right? So traveling to different countries where you can not only not speak the language, but also can't read what the signs say is, yes. is, is the most challenging time. So I did the same in Japan. Like, didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, yeah, I totally relate to you. I can't read Georgian and that that's a massive oh. challenge. I, I should have learned by now, but yeah. it's yeah, quite so, difficult. So why Georgia? Why, why, why did you settle there? Uh, it was a mix of uh, family reasons and um, professional reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if there, there comes a point in life where you kind of want to be close to your parents. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to go back to Russia. They couldn't come to Europe. So we decided to reunite in the third territory. In the middle. And, uh, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> and Georgia is a very simple and um, enjoyable country to be in. It's beautiful. It should, mm -hmm. If you ever get a chance to come and visit, mm -hmm. it's amazing the nature is very unique mm. um it's cheap to be here it's really easy to do business i think yeah. the entire tax code is about two pages wow. <laughs> and they they really did put a lot of effort into attracting um international business and at some point in life i realized that the family values are really important and i can make it work career-wise because i'm a global consultant mm. i have an opportunity to i used to have an opportunity to travel yeah. just like we all yeah. um and you know 70 80 percent of my work mm. could be done remotely anyway that's i was one of the first ones to start the virtual world and maybe yeah. the pandemic made it a little bit easier for yeah. me even yeah, yeah, we'll come back to that in a second. But the other thing I can think about Georgia is when I was in Russia, I got to try Georgian food. And there's something Amazing. very special about Georgian food, right? What is it, the bread with the egg and the garlic? What's that called? Khachapuri. Uh, Khachapuri. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so come on over, I'll have to come visit you and uh, have some, some, some Georgian yeah. delights and the beautiful country that it is. So yeah, as you Absolutely. said, Absolutely. You were one of the first people before we needed to go fully virtual to set up your CX business as a fully virtual business serving clients well beyond your local area. I'm just really interested, like, how did you come up with the idea before it was, I was going to say trendy, it's not trendy, a necessity. <laughs> um, and, and how did you make that journey? 
Well, I think it's, um, to be perfectly honest with you, once you've got your idea and the dream, and my idea was that I wanted my children to, to grow up next to their grandparents, and I wanted my grandparents to have the family connections for, mm -hmm. for the rest of their life, hopefully. And um, that vision makes you think differently and makes you align things and come up with ideas that you probably never considered before and I, I never ever dreamed of moving away from London I really quite like London to be honest but life is such that I you know I decided that that's what I need to do mm. and then I started thinking how can I make it work career-wise and continue doing what I love doing in CX mm. and it, it just worked out uh, thanks to the support of people who believed in me and bought into the idea that it could work so um, to name just a few Jonathan Mindel did a lot to bring me into this uh, consulting world and give mm -hmm. me projects in the early days mm -hmm. um, Ian Golding same um, Ember services were my first client they're a consultancy in London so I was mm -hmm. a, an outsourced resource for them and then it just picked up and I started acquiring my own clients and that's how it I'll work from there, fits yeah. together <laughs> I think things do fit together once you have your uh, vision in place mm -hmm. and great to hear you shout out to some allies I know Ian Golden's been especially helpful to me too so yeah thanks guys <laughs> thank you <laughs> and, and in terms of the, the kind of services you offer now then um, fully remote and online so I know you do quite a lot on the insight space how do you go about kind of like getting clients and servicing them in this digital world? So my two core areas are insights, as you've mm -hmm. just said, and CX implementation. And um, a couple of years ago, I started working on merging agile mm -hmm. into CX practices. Yes. And um, I think it's a really big problem still in the organizations that once they create their CX strategy and their vision and then map the journeys, they think that's it, that, you know, job is done, but it's not, that's just the foundation to keep going. And then the implementation falls through because the organizations aren't used to thinking from the customer perspective and realigning all of their operations and mm -hmm. services to that. Mm -hmm. So that that's why I decided to, to create this um, Agile CX management toolkit in partnership with um, Agile specialists. Mm. And um, it's working really well. It's really guiding people through their implementation strategies and aligning all the functions, ensuring collaboration, retrospective analysis, forward planning, and all of these wonderful things in a very enjoyable way. And they see the results a lot quicker as well. We've estimated that with the Agile Implementation Toolkit, CX happens in companies three to four times faster, mm -hmm. uh, which means people start seeing the results of their efforts and they want to do more. And they, they see how positive their customers become through insights and their employees as well. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of how I go about getting the clients, um, like everyone else, I suppose, it's uh, some of it is through personal connections and being known in the industry. Um, I've done quite a lot over the past two years to raise my profile. Mm. I wrote a book, I judge at CX Awards, I collaborate with people a lot and participate in various initiatives. Mm. Um, so I think all of that creates your personal brand and uh, before clients know you, they 
Mm. They want to trust you. Mm-hmm. There's a few things that I just wanted to pick up on in what you'd said. So I'm with you on the agile implementation and my CX practice, CM experience became so successful in the CX design space for exactly the same reason that a lot of companies try to do CX, but stop at journey mapping and measurement. And then everyone turns around and goes, what was the result of that? Mm -hmm. So being able to quickly move from findings to trying things and doing it in a way that isn't waiting for perfect is the way that you see measurable returns fastest. So I just wanted to concur with you on on that particular point, Um, but also like the power of the network and networking and your your personal brand, your personal profile. Because I know for me, this has been a really strange year because a lot of my clients came because I'd stand on stage and do public speaking and they would have wanted to work with me without me ever having to sell. And the power of inbound leads is awesome when you've got people referring you right and um the kind of stuff that you're doing maybe on social media is is helpful too so what do you see is like the kind of next big challenge for you then or the the challenges that the regions you're working in are facing um for me and for my business i think it's the (laughs) growth pains at the moment because i feel i'm doing so many things i've got an analytics part of my business where got four analysts working on research mm-hmm. um, so they, they analyze the data from customer research mm-hmm. projects uh, that requires attention I've got two guys and myself working on agile CX implementation mm-hmm. and all the various projects like the customer institute I'm involved with um, we're writing a report now with awards international so there's so much and as a many business leaders and I'm sure people can relate to this is that you just don't feel like you have enough hours in the day mm-hmm. and prioritizing and knowing mm-hmm. what to spend your time on sometimes is quite challenging it's that concept lonely at the top you know <laughs> oh yeah totally agree totally agree and um it's a nice problem to have growing yeah <laughs> but it's yes. not, it doesn't make it any easier to deal with it and also you've got your family life as well right so yeah when how are you finding balancing being a career mum entrepreneur growing her business and and keeping the family going especially during these difficult times tough <laughs> especially <laughs> especially with the clo- uh, the closures for the schools now they now they've uh, sent the children all to study at home for three weeks um it's not easy for anyone and i i don't think anyone would say that it's easy and if they do they lying pretend I <laughs> am <laughs> um, very lucky to have my parents um, my partner is very supportive um, so he he does a lot of the housework and looking after the kids but that doesn't remove your mum's needs and the children's need for you Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the practicalities can be taken care of, but mm-hmm. that emotional connection that you still want to have with your kids, mm-hmm. you just have to, you know, put it into your diary. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. So I don't have kids, um, but I, and I struggle with all of those things as well. So the extra layer of uh, family, a husband and parents that live locally, I don't suffer any of those challenges and I find it hard enough. So fair play to you and all the women out there who are managing to keep so many balls in the air. 
yes. um, I, I've heard you mention your husband a few times. He sounds like a really awesome guy. And you talk about your dad quite a lot. Before we go kind of forward again, um, can you just tell us a bit more about your dad? Because I know there's a really interesting story about his influence on you. Um, yes. Uh, well, my dad is a rocket scientist. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> that's a fun fact for you. Mm. And uh, when I was growing up, friends of my pa- or my friends' parents were all in the space industry. So mm. they were either thinking about the rockets or designing the rockets or building the rockets or flying the rockets. So, um, we got taken to a space control center and astronaut training center for school wow. trips. <laughs> so that, that was fun. Um, and I think his influence has always been very uh, analytical, but also very um, imaginative. Mm-hmm. So that combination I find very quite fascinating as he's extremely clever he worked on space ballistics I think something beyond my understanding surely and uh, whenever he tried to explain physics to me I was like god why did I ask I don't want to know about space ballistics I just want that simple little thing for year seven (laughs) Uh, but at the same time having that dream of you know people in space and all that it Mm -hmm. it requires quite a lot of um, Mm open-mindedness and I think that's what I'm grateful for. That's what I inherited from him. I always try to find creative solutions for complex problems. Building your CX rocket. And and something you said that really resonated with me because my dad is a physicist as well. Uh That year seven homework thing. Let out. me take out my books. And you're <laughs> like, no, please not. <laughs> no, and I remember him teaching me like Fleming's left-hand rule and stuff. But it was really handy up until I tried to take physics as an A-level. I think to please my dad, not that I particularly wanted to do it. And I ended up failing because there was a point to which my mathematical capability <laughs> was exhausted and it came at that A-level time. So, so while we're on the subject of guys then and, you know, having wonderful men in our lives, uh, I know that you and I also share another experience of life, which is the opposite of that. And that is that you and I, just like one in three women in the world, have experienced domestic violence at the hands of a partner. So I hope this is going to be an okay conversation for us to have together I know it's the first time I've ever spoken about my experience publicly I think it's the same for you but I think it's a really important topic to raise on women in CX so what was that time like for you in your life but firstly before before we move into these experiences I, I also want to say that it is the first time I hope we both don't get emotional I know I can hard. feel it already the lump, <laughs> the lump in my throat is uh, we'll do our best um, but it's okay to get emotional as well because mm. it's a big part of our life and it was not a pleasant life of our life mm. by by any means and um once I was uh, kind of out of that phase, but not completely recovered, and mm. I don't think anyone ever completely recovers, um, I made a commitment to myself to talk about it more because I think it's an, it's an extremely important global issue. Um, it's the dark days of knowing if, is that me who's going mad or is that the world has gone mad or am I actually right in not wanting this at all it's very confusing and it's um, 
it's a thing that doesn't start on day one of your relationship as well. You kind of grow into it and your perceptions of normality are constantly being pushed. Mm. And um, for me, it was a, a psychological abuse. It wasn't physical, mm. but um, that doesn't make things any better. And I want people to know that, you know, successful, happy women like we are, mm may also fall victim of such terrible things and it's no use to keep silent about it we we need to tell the world that um there is help available you know and i i do make a promise to anyone who's listening to this podcast if you're experiencing such an issue mm -hmm. feel free to reach out to me and i'll talk to you i'll respond to you i'm not a counselor but i will be able to emphasize and um mm -hmm. support you Yes, it is so important. So I was only 15 when it first happened to me. It was actually my first boyfriend. He was older and in, in his early 20s. So I didn't really know what was going on because I didn't have any experience to compare it to. And as you said, you know, everything in the beginning portrayed himself to be the perfect guy, the most loving boyfriend. And over time started to pick away. And I think one of the things you mentioned there was that gaslighting as it's known so mm -hmm. literally convincing you that you're going crazy and it's not them it is you and the impact that that has I think especially on a young woman in the long term it definitely left me with a lot lower level of self-assurance and self-confidence when I'm when it comes to stuff like making decisions about my life because I think I'd like figured it that if I could have such terrible judgment over those five years it planted something in my mind and I've had to get a lot of help especially in recent years um to get over that kind of thing and for me unfortunately it was physical as well as um oh I can't even think what the right word is I'm feeling quite emotional psychological psychological yeah so I get I got it on all sides um but I kept it a secret the whole time and I lost so much weight I was so skinny I was at 17 years old I still had train track braces I was still a kid you know and my mum said she always knew that there was something wrong but it wasn't until I was so sick of it and this guy was threatening to kill himself and kill me and you know I'd never he'd say stuff like you're never going to get away from me unless I kill you he threatened to kill my family and I just got so sick of it in the end I just went just do it if you want to do it just do it and that took the power away because I told my parents what was happening. They got the police involved and it ended just by speaking out. And I wish I'd had the strength to do that. But there's something about men who are coercive and they separate you from your friends and your family. Anyone, again, out there who's experiencing something similar or has in the past, my door is also always, always open because um that feeling of thinking it's your fault or the gaslighting effect that makes you believe it's something you've done wrong. It isn't true. Um, and yeah, I just found it really difficult to say that, but I'm so glad I shared it because I know I'm not the only one and the statistics show one in three of us will experience some kind of violence from men yeah. in our lives. So yeah. is there, um, how did you escape your 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 prison <laughs> um, your it was I think it well it was a combination of having my own uh, threshold of acceptable mm. and I think it, it's very different you never know what's what's yours you know mm. some people 
would walk away the minute they're shouted at mm. and some people would allow years of beating up mm. unless enough is enough until enough is enough um, for me it was that you know constant feeling of being unhappy and mm. feeling that I'm not worth anything much in mm. life and there was an incident that really upset me I don't remember what the incident was it was one of hundreds and on the day I was due to speak to a GP to, to mm -hmm. a doctor um, so I went in um, I wasn't feeling very well physically and emotionally and she asked me so how are you today and then I just started crying saying oh this has happened and oh um, the incident was that he poured water over my child mm -hmm. who was um, less than two at the time because he was so angry but unfortunately it was cold water but mm. what if it was hot yeah. right that wouldn't have stopped him and that that was um that was my enough is enough when it concerns my children then mm. that's it mm. unfortunately so because i should have thought better of myself right because mm. i'm i'm important too um and on the same day my older daughter said something at school that mm. triggered social services involvement wow. and then the combination of gp and social services yeah. triggered this whole chain of investigations and police involvement and yeah. um, doctors uh, yeah. schools everything which is really really stressful mm. but it, ha it is actually very helpful i am grateful that uk has that process in place mm. um, it's horrendous it's tedious you're always in a fear that you're doing something wrong and your children might be taken away and all that but then you realize well just do it right they they tell you all the right things to do mm. just follow that mm. and um you can escape mm. and what i really wish they'd done is that they did this uh, training because my my ex-partner had to go to a course mm. for perpetrators of domestic violence and they give you a very simple diagram to explain what is and what isn't domestic violence mm. they should teach that at school mm. uh, some people really don't know if being shouted at is okay or not maybe they were shouted at all their life mm. so yeah. i yeah, that that was my story of a of a of an escape. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think you raised a couple of important points there. Like, what are we teaching the younger generation about things like consent and domestic situations? But I really worry about how much the onus is on the woman to protect herself rather than on the man not to perpetrate crimes against women. So, for example, we get taught don't go out late, don't wear like revealing clothes just in case you tempt a man to <laughs> do something. But that's not that's, that, that to me isn't how it should be. We should be teaching our, our young men about respecting women and caring for them as well, I think. Because I don't remember any education at school. Obviously, I'm old now, but <laughs> but um, but I'd be intrigued to know, like, from from your kids' perspective, do you know, like, if they get any kind of education about that kind of thing now? I don't think they do. Yeah, and also, it's I find it very hypocritical the way they teach things at school, like, and modern school system that my daughter is in for them at the British school here in Georgia, for example, but it 
you know, follows the British curriculum. So mm. safe to assume it's a Same. standard thing. They teach them how to be proactive, how to resolve problems as a, as a team, how to put forward your suggestions and all that. But when it came to managing the pandemic, mm. they did exactly that. They went up to the teachers and said, look, you're not very good with technology. We can <laughs> teach you. <Yeah. laughs> Please give us a schedule that you actually follow. Please do these things. They compiled a list with really helpful suggestions. Mm -hmm. And then the school did quite the opposite. They're like, we thought you were good students, but now that teacher is really upset. And that's that's not the way to go. And I think that um, undermines the trust the children have in the school system. And should they Mm -hmm. be taught about... Um, domestic violence issues or relationships they probably wouldn't be as perceptive Mm, yeah I think I think having now spoken out about this I'd always had an ambition to try to get in at the the stage that I was at so like the final year of high school to be able to share some of these stories and help maybe young women that are going to experience that kind of violence or um, abuse to see it um and I'm just so glad we had this conversation today because I think it's going to be a kickstart for me to talk more about that experience. Yeah, so, me so just, too. <laughs> so just to finish off, I guess, so maybe it's a good time to just share like our pieces of advice. If any women are experiencing similar situations, what should they be looking out for or, or what should they be doing? Well, I, I thought about it and I think there are five things that I'd like to bring across. Mm-hmm. The first one is never take the blame you are not the one to blame. And things like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that I would have never allowed this to happen to me. This Mm -hmm. is blame. You don't know, you've never been in that situation. You don't have the right to say that. Um, So in the kindest possible way, just don't think that that person is better than you. Mm -hmm. Um, You have nothing to be blamed for, Mm -hmm. except for maybe being a little bit too weak, but Probably not weak, maybe just naive. (laughs) Naive, yeah. (laughs) Or not so strong in your personal beliefs and your personal values, but that's not something to be blamed for. Um, The second piece of advice is accept help. Wherever that comes from, it may not come from your closest friends or family, maybe your random colleague, it may be myself, maybe Claire, uh, maybe social services, but don't, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, the third one is accept that domestic violence happens in all walks of life. You're not the one to be ashamed. It's always the perpetrator's fault. And no matter what your income, your social status, your country, it happens. The fourth one If you think it's not normal, something's not normal, it's not normal. Don't doubt yourself, raise your bar, know that you are worth a lot more. You're you're worth what you're worth. And you feel it's not right, it's not right. Have a read on what's considered domestic violence that might be reassuring. And the fifth one, do a very simple exercise and say, if I could choose what life would I have for myself and my children, and just choose that, then remove all the coulds and woulds and shoulds, and just say to yourself, 
I choose for me and my children to be safe, happy, and loved. So that, that is my uh, message to the world. And perhaps you would have something to add. Yeah, I just was thinking about um, some of the campaigns that are around at the moment. Like if you're on a Zoom call, there's a hand gesture that you can show um, whoever you're speaking to, to break, to flag that you're experiencing domestic violence. Uh, we can't go out in the UK at the moment, but I've seen a lot of um, adverts on the back of like bar toilet doors. There's a word you can say to bar, a bar person who will then help you or call the police or do something to support you. Um, I'll make sure that I add this to the video as some links at the bottom of the screen because I can't for the life of me remember exactly what they're called. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, as you say, if something doesn't feel right, despite however many times the other person tells you it's your fault or it's, or it's okay for them to treat you like that, if you have that feeling that it's not right, the first thing to do is just somehow, somehow reach out and tell somebody um, and get the help that you need to be able to move on. But as Olga said in the, at the, the start of this part of the conversation, you probably look at us as these strong, confident, independent women that kick ass left, right and centre in CX. But we've been through it too. And I'm sure many other women have out there. And it takes a long time to get over it. But we're living proof that it's possible. So again, if anyone out there needs someone to talk to, <laughs> just shoot me a message or shoot Olga a message and, and we'd love to be there for you. Oh, it's been hard it's been emotional <laughs> and honestly like my, my stomach now like I feel freezing cold I'm like actually hugging myself because there's still so much trauma there for me mm. um, my heart is racing and my yeah. palms are all wet <laughs> yeah mine too mine too mine too yeah but and I, I, you know I'm used to speaking to <laughs> thousands of people on all sorts of CX subjects and that never happens to me but this is too deep and too yeah. traumatic yeah, the pain is still there, but I'm just so grateful that you came on the show today and that you were brave enough to help me be brave enough to talk about it too. So just thank you so much. <laughs> I feel like a big well, weight. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to go and have a little cry now, but that's okay too. So thanks everyone <laughs> for listening. Um, thanks Olga for being here and we'll see you all next week. Bye Olga. Thank you all. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Women in CX podcast with me, Claire Musket. If you enjoyed the show, please drop us a like, subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you're listening or watching on. And if you want to know more, please join us at womenincx.community and follow the Women in CX page on LinkedIn. Join us again next week where I'll be talking to another inspiring woman in CX from Africa, talking about proving the commercial value of CX, finding yourself belief, becoming a CX queen and facing racial and gender discrimination when she challenged the CX status quo in the West. See you all next week.